You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Nils Kastrolasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Mark, where we discussed the power and paranoia of trend following and how you make the most money as a trend follower, what history tells us about common risks and diversification portfolio construction, and whether having more markets gives you better return. And I also want to encourage you to check out the Wednesday episode with Dr. Pippa Malmgren, who is a wealth of information on geopolitics and all the latest information about the race for declassifying information about UFOs, a topic that also came up in the US Congress uh, this week as Pentagon officials were testifying about what they know about this topic. So if you missed any of those episodes, I encourage you to go and check it out right after you've listened to Jerry and me. Jerry, even though it's not been that long since we last spoke, it was only yesterday on your Twitter spaces, it's always great to be with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a little worn out and I'm going to definitely repeat myself today, but it was, uh, it's always good to be with you and you have a huge following and thanks for showing up on spaces yesterday and people really in enjoyed it and loved it. Um, and so I'm doing well. And I've enjoyed the podcast, your podcast that you mentioned, especially, I just want to shout out once again, I really, really enjoyed the one that you had about um, energy. Yeah. Forgot the gentleman's name. Adam Rosenzweig. Was, yeah. I mean, I have sent that to a lot of my friends who have no interest in trend following. Shocking. But this one transcends a lot of different interests that people have about what's going on with the conversion or the and nuclear power. I mean, what a great podcast. I love that guy. He was so believable, credible, nice, friendly, incredibly smart. That you hit that one out of the park. I loved it. Yeah, no, that's very kind of you to say. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation as well. And um, But I will say, I mean, we've been very, very fortunate uh, with the guests we've invited for the Global Macro Series that I'm doing with uh, Jim Kassan because um, not only have they showed up, I mean, they have showed up with some really interesting and, as you say, very credible insights that you rarely get in mainstream media, that is for sure. Let me run through a couple of headlines for this week, and then we'll dive into some of the things that has caught your attention. It's a little bit all over the place today, I have to say. I couldn't help, uh, obviously, some of the headlines I saw this morning when I woke up. Uh, you know, we saw the Dow Jones uh, Industrial Average Index. It just fell for, for the eighth consecutive week. We haven't seen that since 1923, and for the S&P, it's now the longest losing streak since 2001. Pretty incredible. Even Bitcoin is down for the most consecutive weeks in its entire history. So um, the lo losses are piling up for the buy and hold crowd, you could say. But as you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Hashtag trend following. 
Driving stocks lower is the barrage of weak earnings report we've seen over the past two weeks, especially uh, the retail earnings, Amazon, Walmart, and Target were the worst of this category, all having their stock prices fell or fall by more than 20%. And the overriding culprit has been rising costs and goods sold uh, cutting into the bottom line. Bond markets has reacted to equity weakness by pushing the entire yield curve, except for maybe the odd 20-year bond, below 3%. And uh, concern can also now be found in the Fed fund futures curve, which is now forecasting that the overnight rate will top out at 3% or thereabouts, um, down from the uh, previous 3.5% that was expected. And then in reaction to the sell-off in equities, investors have begun to wonder at what level they can look for the Powell put to kick in. But if you look at recent comments from former New York Fed President Bill uh, Bill Dudley, uh, you have to be patient if you are hoping for the Fed to bail out the stock market once again. But I want to finish off with something that I think is also illustrates the craziness that's going on and what we're witnessing right now. Because one of my previous guests, uh, this was on the volatility series, uh, David Dredge, I wrote his latest newsletter that came out yesterday, and there was some interesting stuff in there. He was uh, focusing on what the BOJ is up to and what it's doing in terms of its yield curl control in the 10-year Japanese government bond And so what's been going on there is, of course, they're trying to keep the rate at a certain level. I think it's 25 basis points or 10 basis points or thereabouts. And in doing so, they have had to buy up uh, massive amounts of uh, 10-year Japanese bonds. And right now, they own 67% of all those bonds. And then in the last month or so, uh, they have also been buying up in order to keep uh, the level to a rate where if the level of purchasing continues at this speed for another 50 days or so. It doesn't have to happen all in one day, but just to give you an idea, they would pretty much have bought up every single 10-year Japanese bond. That's just incredible in my view. It shows you how crazy this world is. And of course, they're saying, well, inflation doesn't work quite the way it does in other places of the world. But I'm just thinking, well, what if inflation does really work exactly how it does in, in the rest of the world, even in Japan? What then? So anyways, Jerry, just a few things that caught my attention. What about yourself? What have you been watching? I was really heartened to hear your defense of Milton Friedman, I think last week. <clears throat> so, you know, he doesn't get the credit he deserves, and he and people try to actually say he's wrong. I get a lot of Twitter people pushing back on monetary theory, and <clears throat> inflation is always and every t- everywhere and every time a monetary phenomenon but these people don't come with um, a history of having won a Nobel Prize in economics, so I'm going to stick with Friedman on this. But um, you know, one thing I would just say to what you said is that it does look like the Fed put is still a, around, as evidenced by yesterday. Yes, right. we have these long losing streaks, but look at the bond market chart, which has just been a huge downtrend, uh, and the stocks can barely make the 200-day low, barely. And intraday, we're in bear market, 20%, and then all of a sudden we rally 2%, and this just keeps happening over and over. So I think the big organizations that manage most of the stocks are buying, or the Fed is buying, or uh, or everyone's just so sure that they should continue to buy the dip. But this market acts a lot different. It reminds me a bit of 2008, where 
I read an article the other day, the number of 4% up moves during that bear market was, was a large number of 4% up moves on a daily basis. So in the midst of uh, re retracing and losing 50%, we had some very bullish people along the way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's it's a good point, and I think sometimes people forget that even in bear markets, some of the rallies can be ferocious and uh, take a lot of people out. Um, I think from when I think about what's going on right now, um, I agree with you. I think a lot of people are still in the buy the dip camp, um, but I I I just feel that the shifts that are taking place right now. I think we have to get used to sell the rally instead. That's just my hunch. I don't think this is uh, close to being over. And actually, so this is just, just something that um, now that you're talking about it, I remember uh, a while back, um, and of course we try to not stay or go too far away from, from the trend-following world and, and not look at anything other than price. But I do remember that I was talking about something that had caught my attention when it comes to more these, um, let's call it technical analysis terms. And in, in that world, of course, uh, one of the things that seems to be working pretty well is Fibonacci numbers, uh, the sequence of numbers. And I remember talking about that people had to watch out for the year 2021 because if you take 2021 and you start subtracting the Fibonacci sequence, then the years, you actually hit pretty much all the major tops and bottoms all the way back to 1932, without exception. And so for me, 2021 has always been a very interesting year. And I've certainly been going, going been on record saying that I don't think 2020 would be the big top in equity markets. Um, I was more leaning towards 2021. So far, I'm not changing that. Uh, even if we're going to have some periods of time, of course, where equities uh, are going to find some, uh, you know, tailwind and and do better. Um, because of inflation, I think this has changed, and um, I actually think that yeah, this bear market, both in bonds and in equities, could have some ways uh, to go. And actually, that also talks into why I think trend following will be doing um, some amazing things in the coming years because you're going to have the commodity side as well. Let me run this scenario by you. This is something I observe daily and see if you agree with this. Um, so we have inflation and rates are too low. You know, and the interest rate needs to be closer to the rate of inflation to encourage people to save. And so stocks are going to suffer with this increase in inflation in rates because it's the, the stock prices are the present value of all future earnings. So there is your interest rate component. So we see this on a daily basis that Bonds go down and the stocks go down a bit or they're up a bit. And so, but then if stocks go down too much because of too much inflation and rates rising too much, then the rates will act like a flight to quality and the rates will go higher, uh, the rates will go lower. Sure. And so then we're in this scenario that if uh, we'll, we'll get these trends resuming in the short bond positions, as long as the stocks don't go down too quickly. So if they just go down a bit every day and they sort of chop around, but then all of a sudden we get this uh, circular error where um, stocks are down because rates are high, but now rates are lower today because stocks are down. Oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to, to some extent, it's certainly driven by what interest rates are doing, but I also think it's driven by other things, right? And 
one of the things maybe we'll talk about that uh, you know later on, on on another day. I mean, one of the things that I uh, I'm worried about is actually that investors and 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 people in general are going to kind of lose confidence in in a lot of the things that uh, central banks have been up to and what they're still trying to do, and that just opens another kind of worms, so to speak. And, and then on top of that, as I also have been talking about, I, I am actually uh, a believer that this period of globalization is over. And that has some big consequences. A lot of the things that has been working for the last 20, 30 years, risk parity and private equity and all of that stuff, um, I'm not so sure it's going to work that well going forward if we're going to this deglobalizing world. But I do think there will be lots of trends around. Certainly, um, past history suggests that could be the case. So, I follow a few venture capital, private equity indices. They they're out there and uh, they're suffering just like the stock market, if not worse. You know, so yeah, these people yeah, don't no. have any other place to hide. No. In terms of a trend following update, very, very briefly for the week, I actually, I do think that trend followers probably gave back a little bit, but it's not it's not going to be much. Um, obviously, I don't have the Friday numbers for the industry other than sort of a few, a few of them. And it just looks to me like there was a little bit of give back plus minus 1%, depending on what positions you have. Clearly, the, the bonds uh, moving higher in price um, probably cost a little bit of money, especially in the US uh, fixed income market. Europe, probably not so much. And we had a weaker dollar. So those two things, are, I think, were the main drivers of, of returns for the week, as far as I can tell. But um, nothing to, um, to worry about, um, so to speak. Now, we have some great topics that you brought along, uh, Jerry, but we also realized this morning we have lots of questions. Some of them had come in um, just after your last uh, episode a few weeks ago. So I'm going to start with one of those that came in uh, a little while ago because Sasha, who wrote in, uh, has been very patient. Um, so, um, But it is a topic that we like talking about, of course, so let's jump into that. Um Sasha writes, I've uh, listened to yours and Jerry's latest Systematic Investor episode um, number 188. As always, fascinating to listen uh, to Jerry making arguments for long-term trend-following rules and weathering the drawdowns since the loose-pants approach is giving you ultimately the best returns. I can see that in my own backtesting too, actually. One aspect of the simple, highly diversified system that Jerry and Rich always drive home is the single entry, single exit, stop loss, and trading stop principle. When I was reading about the turtle traders in Michael Covell's book, one aspect of Richard Dennis's system really stuck out to me, which is the pyramiding methodology. Basically adding to your position that moves in your favor in defined steps while not exceeding your initial entry risk. According to the author, this was a key factor for turtle-like returns. I've used that methodology myself and was able to build some concentrated positions on some of the outlier trades and I was lucky enough to catch. Outside of Michael Covell's books, I have never heard or seen a reference to this method. I was wondering if you, Rich or Jerry, which is going to be you, Jerry, would be able to shed some light on the effectiveness or risks of this methodology. Maybe Jerry could even share some of his personal experience from his turtle days. Thanks, and I'm looking forward to the next episode. Well, thank you, Sasha. And we have the original turtle here, so why don't we just let you, Jerry, talk about pyramiding? 
Yes. Well, thanks for that question. I would not um, uh, call it pyramiding, and I don't know that uh, I would describe it the way he did, but um, it was simply just defining your risk in each market, let's just say a one unit uh, per market, and dividing that up between uh, two or four systems, 25% each, so a quarter of a unit per system, and then just following the rules. Uh, so one would be a breakout of 20 days, another would be buy at 40 days, 60 days, 80 days, something like that. And so you would um, treat those systems independent. There's no like pyramiding, which I think insinuates that uh, you're going to do the next trade based upon what happened on the last trade. That's not what we did. We had four independent systems. They, We treated them as if they did not know the other three existed, and they all had their own entry and exits. Uh, now, the 20-day, 40-day, 60-day, 80-day breakouts, they could all occur on the same day, so there's no pyramiding or difference. They all have the same entry price, or they can happen all four at on different days or anything in between, right? So it's not what I would consider to be, I don't like the word pyramiding. It insinuates that, for one thing, that you can define your risk. Uh, you can increase your risk if you have some open profit. And you know, I don't do that. We never did that. We defined our risk up front, one unit. We split it up into four different systems, 25% each. And we put those trades on independently. There was one little small, little tiny, tiny rule that said, uh, if you're going to do these trades, if you happen to do these trades on the same day, uh, spread them out, you know, a bit by a little bit, just spread them out, just micromanage and um, don't do them all. So if you do one in the morning, get a couple of ticks profit and do the other one after you have a small little profit. I can tell you, I tested that it underperforms. Uh, Nothing is better than doing the system trade when the system tells you to do it and don't pay attention to the a trade in another system from the same market, for instance. It's a small negative, but it was a small compromise uh, for risk management, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think it actually is um, it's a good point, um, and I'm glad that it was brought up because I've certainly heard this before, that people often confuse the fact that we have multiple systems that can get in into the same trend, but they think of it as pyramiding, and I'm sure that there is literature out there, and of course you're referring to some, Sasha, in your, but if, it's you, if, if that's using the word pyramiding, I do think, uh, as Jerry correctly says, it is not describing trend following accurately. But at least we've clarified that point. Speaking of loose pants, by the way, Jerry, uh, Jeff writes in to ask how Jerry's positions in single stocks have been involving, involving now that many single stocks are down much more than the indices. And in particular, if Jerry still is holding on to his Tesla and Moderna that he's mentioned before on the show. So I don't know if you follow your positions that closely, Jerry, but have you seen a lot of action in single stocks? Because they obviously have performed differently than, than the indices, perhaps? Definitely. Uh, unlike 2020, Jan 2020, when I was long all the stocks, all the currencies, all the commodities, all the bonds, you know, we were long everything. <clears throat> right. I think last week you mentioned, like, you can run into trouble by being long stocks because they could all go down at the same time. Absolutely. I've seen that. But January 2020, I was long everything, and they all went down. And so uh, you could get, get into those situations as well. 
But here, this uh, past couple of years has been so different that uh, the sell-offs in a lot of my stocks that I had uh, put on, very diversified group, Beyond Meat, Canopy Growth, they had started downtrending way before the S&P. That's why I've said I underperformed last year my stock sector because I didn't have the S&P on. I had single stocks that I had put in my portfolio strictly due to their diversifying characteristics, and I got too good at that because they weren't going up. Sure, Most of my <laughs> stocks were going down. So it's really fun to see, you know, whereas sometimes uh, stocks, you're long everything and you're subject to a crash. Now I'm long all the commodities. I'm long, uh, I'm short all the currencies. I'm short all the interest rates. But now I have a mixed bag of stocks, you know, some mm -hmm. longs and some shorts. So it's really the stocks now are acting much better from a risk control diversification point of view than the other sectors. And I, I got out of my Tesla because I do trade long term, but even my longest term system got elected recently. And I've been out of Moderna for a long time uh, because it, you know, it's been in a downtrend by my definition, 150, 200 day low for a long time. So I just treat them the same way, you know. I mean, it's actually, it's a great example, right? Because in, in this instance, for, for sure, the diversification worked um, both ways, so to speak. And I think you've shared before that you don't really short the single stocks, but your systems would short the, the indices instead. I will short single stocks. Oh, okay. I, I, I have a few, but not, I, I do a lot more. I have a systematic rule that keeps me out of short stocks sometimes, but I do have a few on, and I have quite a few short indices there. I've, I scour the world for these country indices and ETFs, you know, I'm short some ETFs. I can, uh, US citizens cannot short Switzerland futures, Swiss futures, but I can short a Swiss ETF. And there's a few more like South Korea, Vietnam. So it's kind of fun spreading out into some of these ETFs. Can you short ARC? <laughs> I can. It's on my list. <laughs> I don't want to pick on her, you know, I, you know no, she no. doesn't need that. But yeah, I mean, if it's out there, I'm, I'm watching, I'm looking. I actually have friends here in Tampa who told me that- She moved to your side, your neck of the woods, didn't she? The whole firm so. is in, yeah, in yeah, Florida now. East Florida. I think uh, there's a lot of hedge funds who like to short her. There's a, I think there's an ETF that is short ARC. <laughs> exactly. That's what I, that's what I was kind of thinking when you mentioned the, the ETF. I thought, yeah, you could either, maybe you could short them or you could buy this short ARC ETF. Anyways. You know, Niels, I've told, I don't know if you remember, but I'm pretty sure I've told you this. Um, I had a short Chesapeake fund. You could buy it okay. and you'd have the exact opposite positions. All right. We we're just messing around and we wanted to see if we could figure out how to make it work. It's not easy. I mean, you know, because if, uh, if you want to have the exact opposite returns. And so uh, thankfully, we never had a lot of money allocated to that fund because so we use it as actually. Okay, I was just going to say, in secret, you've been buying the lows and selling the highs. Jerry, what a revelation. I think I found exactly. the title for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm getting like Harold. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, there's a question in from uh, Louis. He's uh, writing, I've been a listener for years, and I absolutely love the show. Please keep up the great work. Kudos to all of the TTU team. It's 
keeps getting better and better. Well, thanks so much, uh, indeed. I have a question for Jerry. Please, if you don't mind asking him, I believe it is generally accepted that markets have their own unique characteristics. By way of example, the crypto markets will move in a different way to that of equity index markets, which are known to have, say, a long-only bias. With this knowledge, I'm unsure if it's optimal to use an approach of applying the exact same four breakout systems across every liquid market I trade, like Jerry does. I'm thinking it could be more optimal to select your four model parameters, entry, exit, um, on the market-by-market market basis, as opposed to applying the same to all markets. This means that my models are slightly more suited to capturing the trend-following conditions of the specific markets they apply to. Any thoughts on this? I know Jerry will probably argue that a sample size is king, but I think we can still achieve a large enough sample size by conducting multi-market testing on the individual systems before we select them for a particular market. Also, just to touch on another point, Jerry mentioned in episode 188 that he risks 15 basis points per market, uh, roughly 200 markets. This means there is a potential 70% of trading capital, capital that is not being utilized, i.e. set in cash. Does Jerry have any advice on how we can put that 70% to work? Thanks very much in advance. A couple of questions for you there, Jerry. Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's right, sample size. Uh, to get the requisite sample size for the long-term trend following, we use all the markets, treat them all the same. Longs and the shorts, treat those the same as well. Um, I don't think there is enough data to do what he's saying. Generally accepted? No. Come on. I love that when people start these arguments with, well, you know, everyone agrees with me. <laughs> well, okay. If, if you say so, it's probably better to start these discussions with, here's my evidence and here's my proof. That's what I would hope I could do. But uh, there's not enough data for crypto, for sure. I mean, of everything out there, it's the least amount of data. So if you're going to trade the way we trade, long-term trend following, and you're prizing his sample size, uh, so he's, he's exactly right there. Right there, you don't have to go any further. You know, Rich came up with this idea, Rich Dennis, and I've mentioned this before, um, that the way to get by this issue is to do an in-sample and out-of-sample. And his example would go like this. So test corn and optimize the corn for the first 10 or 15 years, and, or do it for every market and see what parameters you come up with. And then you use those same parameters for the next 10 or 15 years worth of data and see if it, if it remains the same. And his contention was it probably would not and that your best guess quote unquote guess for the future would be using all the data for all the markets and um, doing it that way. I don't think these markets have personalities, long biases. I mean, every market has a long bias. You know, give me a break. Of course they do. You can get a four, 500, 600 ATR profit in some of these trades. And most of the time, the shorts, if they go to zero, it, you know, it's not going to be anywhere close to that. So we understand all of that. Uh, so obviously, Every market has a long bias. Yeah, and any any thoughts on um, what to do with the seventy percent you don't use for margin? Yeah, you know um, the cash manager that Chesapeake uses and Dunn uses is a good choice, and uh, I think you've spoken about those guys. And I would just say though, just to round out, not to give a miss 
understanding, a conception of this is that even though we do have 70 or 80% of the cash left over, for every million dollars that we manage, our clients probably have positions in assets that are $10 million <laughs> or more. So we're really pushing the envelope as far as uh, our positions. So if you take a million dollars and buy an index fund, you have a million dollars worth of that index fund. If you give Chesapeake a million, you probably have $10 million of assets that you're long or short. Uh, and it could be a lot more than that as well. So we're not, we're, we're putting your money to work to say the least. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as Jerry uh, referenced there, um, it is actually true that uh, both Don and, and, and Chesapeake uses the same uh, cash manager um, up in New York called Halyard Asset Management. So if you do reach out to them, Mike or Adam up there, um, say hello from uh, Jerry and me that uh, we sent you. Right. Cool. Let's move on to a question. For, oh, let me just actually just give one answer to uh, Louis uh, from my side. I completely agree with Jerry that for 95% of people probably just keep it simple, use the same rules for all, um, for all systems uh, or for all markets. However, if you were to do something different, the way I would consider doing it would be to say you have your 100% risk budget. Let's just take, make it simple that you have, say, 30 basis points per market risk in total. You could divide that into, say, three buckets. And you could say, okay, 10% of that, or 10 basis points, a third, or it could be more, actually. I use universal parameter settings for that. And then you could take uh, another portion of the total risk budget and say, okay, for that, I'm going to optimize based on sectors. So I might, it might give me slightly different parameters for metals than for softs, than for whatever, stock indices. And then you use that. And then you could go to the extreme, but you have to be cautious, and this probably should be by far the smallest part of the total risk budget. And then you do the same, and you do it on an individual market basis. And it's going to give you slightly different parameters as well. But all I'm just going to say is, is it going to be worth it? I'm not sure, but that is one way to think about it. I'd like to object. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I knew you would. So go ahead. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it goes into more important topics and other, and other topics. And I think um, you have a tendency to bring this up and uh, under this heading of trend followers diversify, so why not diversify? And so I think though that that sounds good, it sounds good, but we tend to diversify without making these type of compromises. And so I think everyone has a line, it's drawn, and then, so your line is different from my line. And so just as a general rule, I don't want to default to what I'd consider to be shaky ideas. Well, because we love diversification. No, 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 no. I mean, like, let's have a system that takes large losses and small profits. Let's just diversify. No, no, no. Because that's not that great. It's not going to make money. It's going to impact what we do, especially if it's a third of what we do. 25%. So you could come up with these ideas. And so it's really not a question. The ruling, what's going to carry the day cannot be, well, it's diversification. No, what carries the day is it has to be very close to being robust and safe and uh, positively, positively skewed and all of these things that are the core of what we do. And then we can talk about 
it really is a close call. The back test says there's really not that much difference. It is solid mathematically, statistically. So I'm not picking on any particular thing. It's not even this necessarily. It's just that you want to not be able to use this stock default position that, well, it's not that big a deal because we love diversification that much. I don't love it that much to do things that are not going to like be super positive to my overall returns. It kind of reminds me of a quote I saw from Morgan Housel, um, or maybe it's a quote he's quoting, I don't know, but it's something along the line. Um, a truth that applies to almost every field is that it's possible to try too hard, and when doing so, you can get worse results than those who know who knew less, cared less, and put in less effort than you did. So. That was a brilliant, yeah, I, I saw that this week. It was fantastic. He's so good. He's so reliable. Yeah. I know, I know. All right. Okay, cool. Let's move on. Here's a question from Adam. Um, he writes in, I hope you're well. Excellent show as always. Back again with another question. I experienced something very uncommon in my strategy this week, and I would be interested to know what you and your guest might have, um, how we may have reacted in this scenario. One of the markets in which my system was positioned short in this week fell 95% in one day. Top marks, if you can guess which market it was. It's not a typical CTA market. It's Luna, without a doubt. <laughs> Having fallen 95% and assuming that the price in this market can't go negative, I was curious to hear your thoughts on what the benefits you believe there would be to leave the trade open and let the system close the trade naturally according to the system rules. I came to the conclusion that it would be best that I close that position manually after a 95% drop. Not something I've done before. Uh, my thought process was that by leaving it open, there was not too much further it could fall, regardless of how much of an outlier it was. And there was far greater chance of it bouncing back and ultimately giving back a lot of the profit in the trade. In your opinion, is there a benefit here to just letting the system run? Or would this type of scenario be an exception to the rule, perhaps, question mark? For example, if we were managing other people's money, would it be irresponsible for us to leave the trade open if your goal is to maximize wealth for yourself and for your clients? Thanks again for the hard work. Um, yeah, You know, there's another one. I have to read this one as well. It's actually the kind of the same question, um, but I just want to recognize Scott, who also wrote in, um, and Scott writes, heartfelt thanks for producing what is, for me, the most informative and interesting podcast in the world right now. Without you and your guests, I'll be listening to some faux global macro fraud with a Twitter handle of a cartoon penguin and believing they could crystal ball the future. So I appreciate that comment, uh, Scott. System trading for the win. My apologies in advance for stirring the pot. As someone developing my own trend-following system for crypto perpetual futures, I know most of you hate them, but they do really trend. I have a question for Jerry. The non-vola camp. A successful long grows in size while a successful short shrinks. If you hypothetically shorted 1 million worth of Luna coin, 10,000 Luna, as it plunged from $100 to 0.001 this week, your position size would have started at a million and shrunk to $1 within a week, not claiming an outlier uh, at all. Of course, volatile targeted systems would 
be maintaining a decent position right the way down to the end. But how do non-volatile trend followers deal with an inherent difference between shorts and longs? Is there a way to capture this move? if outliers of the outliers with a non-volatile-targeted system. Is there a difference between performance in shorts and longs in non-volatile-targeted systems, aside from equities, for the obvious reasons? And if so, does it exist in non-volatile-targeted systems? All right. So they're kind of a little bit, I think, the same kind of question, Jerry. So why don't you just share some of your thoughts about how to do with these extreme outliers, I guess, to the short side? Yeah, well... um Boy, you're, he's, as you well know, he does not need to apologize to me for stirring the pot. I mean, come on. <laughs> apologize if you don't stir the pot when I'm on, right? So uh, that's great. Um, oh, I have so much to say on this topic. Number one is we are not concerned about the dollar value going lower necessarily and because we don't look at dollar value. We put the trade on. We look at the ATR, what's the juice in this market, the volatility, what's a typical day. You know, how, how much is it going to fluctuate uh, per day? So I got a similar question from a friend this week. So it could be the same guy. And I started looking at some trades, some of the bigger historical shorts. Uh, short crude in 2014 came to mind pretty quickly. I looked at some of those trades. I just didn't see um, in those big trades the characteristic of ipso facto vol is going to decrease or increase or it probably decreases increases like any big trend on the upside or the downside um once again uh, we we like to trade these shorts the same way for sample size reason we like to trade shorts knowing that historically they haven't done nearly as well they do well sometimes they add diversification on a daily basis they add diversification when nothing else is working not being short a lot of energy in 2020 uh, crude on its way uh, and the one contract going negative would have uh, that trade never turned out to be very much uh, of those short trades in the commodities but at that point in time it was really uh, helping our performance so that's what shorts are sort of there for i don't think it's a good idea to overanalyze these shorts once again we're assigning characteristics to markets to shorts what are you going to do let's dig deeper 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 so we can create more rules no it's the opposite we're going to one entry, one exit, a stop loss. It's the same for every market, for longs and for shorts. And this this will work, I think, much better. One of the things I was hoping to bring up was, um, oh yeah, the other question, Adam's question, which reminded me of um, this interaction I saw on Twitter. Uh, one of my friends on Twitter, Michael, he was totally mischaracterized my um, opinion on issues like this. And I uh, was very unhappy with this characterization. It's totally wrong and unfair. Uh, at least according to me, right? So I've sort of said over the years that let's have these very strict rules and uh, one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, and not a situation where there's this daily diet of special rules for special situations. Let's take this off, let's add, let's subtract, vol management, or here's a special situation with, you know, we all know how shorts act. No, no, they don't act any different than anything else don't dig too deep. Don't come up with these special rules. However, if you're actually going to do something like Adam did, get out of Luna after this crazy situation, that actually is more robust. So once a year, I have this crazy thing happen where I've made a lot of money, 
I don't think it's going to go any lower or I'm making something on the upside where it's nickel is just going crazy. So if you want to get out of a piece of that with no rule involved at all, I think that's actually better than every day uh, implementing these non-robust rules to take profits and, and to reduce your volatility. So his characterization of of that was that I do too many, Jerry does too many discretionary trades. What? <laughs> I just could not fathom where this came from. So anyways, I think Adam is onto it. Yes. And I did the same thing in the Russian stock. I was short the Russian stock ETF. It started going down so much, so low that I measured how much will I make in addition if it goes to zero, which I think is similar to what Adam is saying. I took the price. I figured out how much further it could go based upon the position I had. And my conclusion was it's not going to, it's going to be 20 bips more. So get out and it can only rally from here at the risk reward. I don't have a rule for it, but I thought this is pretty stupid. So I got out of my Russian stocks a couple of days later and stopped trading, but it was much lower. So I got lucky on that. And so I think sometimes it's totally okay and preferable to infrequently say, hey, the world is a crazy place. I've got a 500 ATR profit. I'm scared to death. Volatility is going crazy. I think I'll get out of 10% or 20%. My point was, that's a better rule slash non-rule than some of these bad rules. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it doesn't make it. It makes uh, perfect sense. Yeah, no, I remember that you did have uh, kind of a similar situation. Um, so, and and you actually had you had another situation. I think maybe the ruble didn't lose that much ground, but you had. I think you mentioned last time that. You also had a short ruble position, but that didn't get triggered, so to speak. So you you stayed in that, and that actually traded back up again, as far as I remember, for the ruble. Oh yeah, it's the worst the lines. worst trade ever. So I mishandled the ruble because yeah. But how much did that go down compared to the because the Russian stocks you mentioned they almost went down to like zero. Yeah, they almost did. I mean, they closed uh, yeah. close to zero. But yeah, for some reason I had a different analysis on the ruble, and I gave all that profit back. And that's just the craziest market ever, uh, the ruble. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Okay, then we move on to a question from Carl. Carl writes, I'm looking forward to this uh, series. One thought on topics for the series. Uh, so this is actually a, a kind of a, a fun, interesting um, point of view. So Carl is asking, maybe we can talk about what doesn't work. I know that there is an un it's an unlimited topic, but maybe it's better stated as popular ideas that does not work. For example, I often hear that do not apply the Kelly formula to trend following. I think we've heard um, maybe Rich talk about that. I'm not sure. Basically, uh, it would be good to share some research um, lessons you've learned that could save your readers or listeners some time and resources from uh, fruitless or worse, known to be harmful research pursuits. So, so let me just start on this one, Carl. I think actually it is an interesting interesting idea. And in a sense, you could say that a lot of the things we talk about is the same thing, meaning we, we drive home some basic things to do. And therefore, you can also infer that there's a lot of things that you shouldn't do. And I do think that research in general 
is kind of trial and terror, meaning it is about 95% of the time you you try things and it doesn't work. Um, so, of course, it would be great if we could just share you a laundry list of things that hasn't worked for, for, for our firms in, in all of those decades, so you don't have to try it. But research is also about learning and understanding and figuring out things for yourself. So just being given the answer, of course, as, as I'm sure you know, Carl, is not the answer either. But, I mean, I'm going to let Jerry talk to some of the things that may he, maybe he found over the years just that doesn't work, right? But but you can take some of the core concepts. And, and one of the things that I will certainly mention um, is that when I see trend-following advertised, because lots of people will say, oh, we have this wonderful trend-following system, you can just go and buy it from us, or here's the rule books, and you can just go and apply it uh, yourself. They never talk about actually diversification of markets. Um, they, they make it sound, at least to, to me, like trend-following will work on anything you put it to. And I don't know that I agree with that. If you just did trend following on equities, I'm not so sure that your results would be fantastic, right? Or if you just did it on fixed income or if you just did it on soybeans or whatever it might be. I don't think that's so. So a big no-no for me is don't try trend following on a limited number of markets. I would say that's one of the the secret sources of, of trend following in my view is that you need to apply to many markets at the same time, which is also why um, you will have heard me say I'm not necessarily in favor of DIY trend following for everyone because if your account size, and I understand why it would be, is not big enough for you to get the full diversification, I think you're better off paying a, a professional um, CTA uh, an amount of money every year um, for managing that uh, for you, so so for me at least, that that's certainly one thing I can I would say is don't don't try to do trend following on a small uh, number of markets, um, at least in in my experience. What are the other no nos, uh, so to speak, Jerry? I'm sure it's a long list. Well, I just wanted to follow up on what you said. I agree with what you were saying, but it's two different subjects there. One is um, if you trade only one sector stock only, currencies only, bonds only, commodities only, It's the portfolio performance is not going to be nearly as good. Now, but if you looked inside the stock only, trend following works wonderful. Oh yeah, nothing can beat long-term trend following for making money and risk control with stock only. It's just that on a standalone basis, any of those uh, standing alone, it's, you know, you're not going to get that magical diversification we get that allows you to make 10 or 15 or 20 percent per year with uh, really minimizing those drawdowns. You know, the stock market is an 8 percent gain per year on average in a 50 plus percent drawdown. A diversified sector of markets can come close to being that bad. Just you can't do it, not with trend following, not trading all the markets and the shorts. So trend following on one hand absolutely works, but if you're only trading one sector, <clears throat> it's not going to be a smooth ride. Uh, one of the things we found over the years was that even when we were trying uh, some bad ideas like um, profit objectives and uh, taking profits before the uh, the trailing stop was hit, is that if you just added a little bit of trend to it, it made it a lot better. So if you have a bad idea of, if I get a 40 ATR profit, I'm just going to take some off the table. We found that if you just gave it like, well, wait to the one day low or the five day low, it just improves it so much. So trend is always improving uh, every bad, even bad ideas, not 
playing for the outliers. That's a bad idea. Uh, one of the things that makes me laugh sometimes is when I go through the markets on the charts at the end of the day, is I just keep being told, uh, you just cannot predict these markets. You know, having systems that try to predict and have evidence and relative strength, I think uh, that's one thing that I don't think works at all. Um, I have these wheat positions on, and as soon as I get pessimistic on wheat, it's up, uh, you know, a dollar fifty in two days, and then uh, the past couple of days it's been down a dollar. So it's nothing's going to do better than your system, and you just really can't predict where these markets are going. Over the years, I've tried to limit shorts because they're not as good as longs. That's really cost me as well. So. Yeah, that's actually another, another good point. And, and actually, my, my last point on this topic um, in terms of what not to do is something I think we, we, dri we try to drive home as many times we can, but not necessarily using the same words. And that is, don't overcomplicate trend following. <laughs> I mean, just keep it simple. I mean, there's a definitely uh, uh, lots of evidence for, for, from people who have tried to do something um, very fancy But at the end of the day, if you just look through performance tables of Trendfollow who's been around for 20, 30 years, the ones who have kept things relatively simple are the ones who are still in the top five or 10. Um, so uh, yeah, that would be my last point. Final question, because you also have some topics, uh, Jerry, that you want to talk about. Final question is from Brian. Um, and this is a completely different uh, topic. Um, but Brian is is interested in... What are the ways that an ownership of a CTA or a managed futures firm passes on to a new owner when there is a retirement of the owner or the owner decides to sell the business and how does intellectual property uh, get evaluated by a, a new owner? And I will say it's kind of an interesting question, right? Because there aren't that many examples actually in terms of trend followers who have passed on ownership. If you uh, look at you, Jerry, if you look at many of your other legends in our industry, it's still the founders, really, that are running those uh, firms. Of course, I work for a firm where the ownership has been passed on. Bill Dunn was our founder. And in 2010, he decided with our new current owner, Marty Bergen, to pass on the ownership. Uh, and originally they agreed a 10-year transition period. So quite a long time to pass on ownership. And to Marty, who had been with the firm for a long time before even getting the opportunity to take it over, um, although the actual transition period got shortened a bit, um, it, it th I think that was a very smooth transition and uh, in a sense one of very few where you now have a, a quote-unquote younger generation um, running the firm, but also managing to keep the DNA and, of course, all the IP and all of that is part of the transfer. But but but, but Brian has a point in saying that there aren't that many uh, who have done it. And I don't know if that's something you've thought about, Jerry, at all um, in terms of your own legacy, I guess. That's a really good question. And I, I looked at it uh, from an even broader point of view. And that is, we've seen some of these larger firms come out of large firms, AHL, was a man was a large firm AHL they had AHL and then AHL some of the AHL guys went off and started their own firms and so from the very get-go they were very familiar with what it takes to not only do trend following well but to have a good business and a sustainable business and with the marketing and the infrastructure and the proper investments and the personnel 
And so I think when you start down that road of saying, hey, it's important to have good systems and signals, but also we have to have a really solid business and create businesses that look more like traditional businesses that have lasted for many years that, you know, part of the succession planning just becomes uh, normal and part of it. But if you continue uh, sort of small and founder dominated, uh, you know, you're not, you're probably not going to bring in as many uh, talented people over the years, which is going to weaken your organization. But I think uh, not only succession, but is important, but transitioning from founder led dominated everyone's going to do what I tell them to do to more of a normal corporation where a lot of people are contributing. And this founder, no matter how great and appreciative we are of him, is starting to utilize a lot of talented people around him to keep the the money management, um, you know, the systems and the trading at a high level. So I applaud those firms who have done that. Um, I think one of my mistakes over the years was not concentrating as much as I needed to in those areas, but kept saying, well, you know, uh, I think we have great systems. We're going to make money and all of the shortcomings I have or we have uh, will sort of be taken care of because we're so great at making money. That's, you know, sometimes you're not that great at it and you need to be able to fall back on a really solid infrastructure and a big group of people, talented people who are there to help you. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And and maybe just to finalize that, I've only seen a couple of examples of, there's there's a few examples where you've seen a um, CTA then being bought by a big organization, like a bank-like organization. I don't know why I'm thinking this right now, but I don't remember many success stories when that happens. There are a couple of them I can think of. I do think there's something about trend-following firms being somewhat quirky and different from these big corporate um, shops. And and I think that could be part of our success, um, that we don't get institutionalized maybe as easily as some of the other funds out there uh, or types of funds. But anyways... All right, Jerry, finally we get to your topics. Um, so that's going to be fun. And uh, I'm just going to throw out some of the lines you gave me and we'll see where we're going to go with that. Um, so one of the questions, and we touched on this uh, last time, it was very interesting, an eye-opening conversation for me, actually, where you talked about, you know, can long-term classical trend following make money very frequently and almost every year? And I think we talked about kind of on a rolling 12 months basis and and your contention i think is yes without any type of all management so talk a little bit about that topic and one thing i will throw in there and and we touched on that yesterday in in, in your twitter space and that is you know are one of the reasons why you feel we can actually do this um maybe not every single 12 month rolling period but, but to a high degree because of things you have learned meaning things you have improved from the original. It could be massive diversification. It could be other things. I don't know. So when we talk about can long-term classical trend following, are we really saying, can you, knowing what you know today, have you actually ended up designing systems that gives you a very high degree of consistency, which I said 
last time, intuitively, or maybe I said it actually with Rich on a, on a, on a later conversation, intuitively, I don't think we are designing our systems to be consistent because if we're trying to catch outliers and they are infrequent, how can we also try and be consistent? Um, so I think this is where the, the topic gets really interesting. Um, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know. It really is interesting. And you've made me um, think about this. So to answer the question that you posed, by accident, it's not by design, it's just by accident. So one of the things you said, and I was impacted by your discussion with Rich. I didn't write it off. You know, I was like, wait a second. What they're saying sounds very, very logical. So here's your quote. Um, maybe we have to compromise some of the other things that we stand for in trend following to achieve that because you're trying to manage the smoothness of the returns. Ah, so therein, yes, that's a great statement <clears throat> because it's the opposite. Yeah, it's the opposite. Because what I'm saying is by not managing the smoothness of the returns, we have more consistency. That is the secret. So if you're wanting to manage the smoothness, fall management would be, a, would be one component, for instance, and a lot of other things that people do, correlation management. Then the computer, the back test says, okay, I'll give you that. But if you're going to have a system that has these huge drawdowns, this huge volatility, you're going to have these big profits that turn into losses, big profits that turn into small profits. I'll give you one thing. You can have one thing. You're going to be very consistent on a longer term basis. And so it's kind of like saying, do nothing and trust me. And that's what we found. Chesapeake started in the first 13 years. We had 13 winning years in a row. And our systems were not nearly as good as they are now. We didn't trade as many markets. And then when we did our back testing in 2007 and 8, we had no losing years in the back test. We did one recently that I don't put a lot of faith in, and it had no losing years since 1977. Now, I don't think some of those winning years were 1%. So obviously, it takes a bit of luck. Which markets did you choose? Which indices? How many markets? Which systems? How many systems? And frankly, making money every calendar year is much easier. You know, this, I don't think there's any system that can make money every trailing 12 months. But that was our goal, is to try to get that up into the high 80s, 90s, or whatever. And we would say, hey, look, we're, we are bad at every other metric. Sharp, of course. Serenity, the pain ratio, or all of these fancy formulas. But one thing we do think we do have a shot at is being about as consistent as anyone else. And ironically, what was driving that was one entry, one exit, and a stop loss, and not trying to smooth out the returns. Because you're right, that is antithetical to trend following. But I don't blame, I, I don't, I think it's a perfectly logical conclusion. My brain is telling me, yeah, that's smoothing, but it's not smoothing. <laughs> We're still left with these big drawdowns. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a wonderful insight. So if I'm trying to, to paraphrase here a little bit, so when you look at your current system, as you say, if you do a backtest, you actually end up with a backtest with no losing calendar year. So I have not looked at our current models backtest in that space 
uh, or in that way. But I think, I think that there is a similar that would be a similar profile, meaning that yes, we have in different ways found ways to improve trend following. So I'm actually not surprised by that. And when you explain it like that, I do think you're right. But the way I have always phrased it in my own mind is people look at our return streams as being lumpy and not very consistent. But you can go back in time and you can look at any trend following track record and the consistency lies within the profile, meaning the profile of our returns is incredibly consistent. Meaning we go through these period, four or five months where we make no money and suddenly we make lots of money in three months. I mean, the profile. So you've actually taken it one step further, which, you know, I can look at our historical returns and, okay, maybe we get to 70% rolling 12 months. I haven't looked at calendar years, but you're right. There aren't that many calendar years that are down more than maybe one or two percent, which is kind of a scratch, and and who knows? It's a it's just the day it, the the calendar year ended, right? Um, That's right. Pro or, is, pro or con, yeah. you're going to get lucky because when the calendar year ended, and I think the last sure. ten years sure. will look much different. There's no one. Uh, I'm pretty sure we didn't make money, or a back test uh, did not make money uh, the past ten years. Every every one of those years, so it's been quite a bit different since we've uh, not had as many. In every paper that we've read, AQR and others, that talks about why the trend following not do so well over the past 10 years, is the conclusions are all the same. We just haven't had as many long-term trends. And the ones we did have were sort of isolated in stocks. So CTAs maybe didn't handle those as well. They traded indices, so you're not going to get huge outliers like you would get in uh, commodities, trading those individual commodities. So I would say that uh, it's a bit different now. But still, I think if you pose the question or the, the uh, goal is to try to do as well as anyone, it's really just a, another evidence of the power, the tremendous power of these outliers that nothing is as good as those. And you can't predict and trying to overlay some sort of man risk management on top of them makes them a bit smaller and it will smooth things out but it will cost you in this other area. Another thing I brought up, this is just another example of, because another thing you brought up, and I agree with on a, a couple of different issues, and that is, uh, I just don't see it making much of a difference. I don't see this characteristic. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. I haven't been consistently trading one entry, one exit, and stop loss. The CTA industry, there's no, almost no one trades this way. Rich, me, Mulvaney, Mike Melisinos, <laughs> we don't control a lot of assets. So you're trying to find like, where is this consistency? This must be a track record out there. No, there isn't. Where is this benefit? I, you know, you said the other day, I don't see much benefit in this continuing to add more and more markets. That's right. Because the benefit of adding more markets is capturing more outliers. If you have a strong fall management, you're limiting those outliers. They're not going four or 500 ATRs. You're trying to reduce those outliers. The outliers are sometimes defined as sort of problematic, They're creating way too much vol for me. So we're basically saying, hey, here's this back test. The back test is the only thing that's been really consistently uh, trading this particular way. And it has some really nice features to it to go along with all the negative features that 
a typical CTA, to quote Quantica, uh, tries to get rid of. And then, of course, on the complete other spectrum outside the world of trend following, you have those funds where they come up with these track records that looks incredibly consistent, making money every every month, and then suddenly they go out of business or they lose 50%. So that is, of course, the complete opposite when you try to do something that looks incredibly smooth and uh, without any risk, but actually those are the ones who have the biggest risk inside. And it reminds me of one, one of the things we talked about in the past, but also yesterday, and that is we debated a little bit of this thing about, so how do you choose one CTA over another. I mean, could you say it's fair enough to um, just use the sharp for that? But you made a really important point, and that is the reason why that we shouldn't look at the sharp um, at all, really, is one, not be- not just because it wasn't designed to look at individual investments. It's really a portfolio tool. But more importantly, and I think that that's a brilliant point, and that is it does not take into account the actual risk of loss. It just looks at volatility over return, uh, or return over volatility. So, so, and and that is really important. Um, so, so that that's another um, great point. Yeah, a lot of these formulas, these Excel formulas, I sometimes I struggle to see how they translate into uh, risk of capital, and so I think that's the problem with using some of those formulas. I don't care what the formula is necessarily, unless it's correlated and translates into some sort of, because the, the goal is to stay in the, stay in the game and maintain capital so your positively expected system can play itself out. You don't want to be forced out from overtrading or not following your system uh, because eventually you'll win and so you need to, need to stay in the game. So CTAs with a lot of volatility and lumpiness which Rich would say is a sign of letting the outliers go to their full potential and you maximize your compounded annual growth rate. This is a sign of robustness and the ability to stay in for the long term, which is what the opposite of what Sharp says. A low Sharp is maybe a problem, but other people seem to disagree. And what are the two best, by most people, what are the two best investments ever, ever in our entire lifetime, the S&P and Warren Buffett. You know, Buffett compounded at 20%, like his whole life or something. What's his sharp? A question never asked by anyone. I will see people pull out and say, did you know his biggest drawdown was X? Maybe, sometimes. But when they get together in Omaha and people worship Buffett and the S&P and how consistent it is, no one is using these formulas, these spreadsheet formulas, is they're both in the game, they both withstood it. And I sort of see the classic trend following as very, very similar to the S&P index. The rules are kind of transparent, the markets are sort of transparent, anyone can do it, it's out there for anyone. It beats, it kicks everyone's ass all the time, it never loses. I don't know if anybody in the past three years I don't know if anybody's done as well as just the classic trend following. It continues to do so, so well. I fear for the CTA industry that it's beginning to get so different, especially this past few weeks where we've seen papers and interviews of some of the biggest firms. It's reminding me of more complexity, getting further and further away from simple trend and allowing these outliers to do their thing. And I wonder if it's going to look more like AI and machine learning and the next time we get a big sell-off and a big 
pandemic or a big problem in the markets where the most important thing is hitting those breakouts very quickly, turning that portfolio around, putting your whole heart and soul into these trends, is the industry in general going to be ready? Or are we going to have filter our way out of some of these uh, great trends and some of these big outliers? Yeah, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit more about that, or, or you can go with any of the topics you've written down. But it kind of defi- it reminds me again about an, another one of these quotes from Morgan uh, Housel in the same uh, article. I think he wrote something like, define what you're incapable of and stay away from it. And and we are incapable of doing high sharps, and we should not, we should not try in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I do think you bring up a good point. And I guess that's probably one of the big conundrums, really, um, when I look at it and obviously dealing with uh, the investor side of things. And that is how undervalued and underappreciated raw trend following is, because the simpler you make it sound, the less interest people have, or maybe they could be persuaded to buy something like a, a cheap flat fee replicator thinking that they're getting the real thing, but they're not. So I, I, I share your concern, but I also see an opportunity, right? I mean, if that's the way uh, lots of, of people do, then for people like Chesapeake and Don, there should be a role in sticking to what we know best and have done for more than four, four decades, right? I mean, so it's kind of good and bad when, when you think about it. Um, but it's not easy, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you're right. You're right about that. Just keep pushing forward and doing what you think is correct and for the right reasons, and um, maybe we'll get rewarded. And um, I think at the end of the day, the consistency is <clears throat> that you get from this type of trading is what's so important. And um, it's really just grateful and comforting that uh, putting your faith in these outlier trends is by a lot of the evidence shows that it's it's really it's really worth it. We can all do it. You know, the chances of you being successful is overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. Are there any other of the topics um, you want to dive into more than others? If we want to pick one more uh, or before we ra- uh, wrap up today, um, let's talk about what Mark said: um, trends, trends, and no diversification. I don't know if I can um, fully do justice to this. I needed to talk to Rich some more about this, my confessor, my trend-following pal, you know, uh, but I floated this to him yesterday and he kind of agreed with me, you know, and that is that I agree that Mark has said this before and uh, I tweet more of Mark than I do of anyone else. So he just has this ability to really come up with good topics and he and I can twist them into how trend-following deals with these. And uh, so I was really interested in this. And I know weeks ago, he tweeted something similar. Uh, He wrote something similar about how CTAs make money when everything moves. And I was thinking, well, wait a second now. Rich doesn't say that. Jerry doesn't say that. We say CTAs make money when you have these outlier trades. And, uh, but it's undeniable, especially this year, that um, all the sectors are trending. CTAs are doing really well. I think uh, the classic trend following did better maybe in 2020, 2021, but now everyone is doing really well, regardless of of your strategy. Almost fall management is probably doing better, you know, than uh, Chesapeake, and um, from what I've sort of gathered, so a bit, just a bit better. So, um, what is the answer here? 
does CT, do CTAs need to wait for these big factors, as Mark called it, to occur, inflation and uh, Ukraine and things like that? Or is it okay for Jerry and Rich to sit back and just rely upon these big outliers, which are 5% of the trades, but now 95% of the trades are making all the money. So my contention is, without digging into it as deep as I'd like to, is that both are correct. For Rich and me, we are profiting uh, from the sector moves, obviously, but our, probably our systems are longer term and subject to giving back more of these profits because they're just kind of good moves spread out over all the markets almost. Whereas our systems are really more suited, we hope, we, we, we want them to be, for uh, these one, 5% of the trades that really go <clears throat> two to 500 ATRs, 200 to 500 ATRs or something like that. So since the majority of the industry does not have those size of outliers because of the volatility management that would reduce those positions and not allow them to get up to, you know, Tesla was up to 500 ATRs at one point, but it's probably been a 200 ATR drawdown. No one can tolerate that. That is not smart, <laughs> according to, you know, the industry. So I think that's sort of the difference is that um, we're correct. And yet, since the majority of the industry requires and needs to, for these sectors to all go at the same time, that's the way their systems are sort of uh, designed then it does look like that CTAs in general do need these sectors to move. And this is the characteristic. Whereas Rich and I, we are still targeting the outliers. And when we get these infrequent outliers, they can literally, just a couple of them, can make 10 or 15% profit per year for us. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that is a good point, actually, that there is nuances, there is differences, even within trend following. Uh, uh, and... Um, and actually, that's another thing that uh, allocators, sort of the large allocators where they pick uh, a number of trend followers. I always heard, and I still hear it actually, the argument when people come in and they look for, um, okay, so we're doing a, a search for a trend follower and we've got 10 on our shortlist and we just need to find one. And I'm thinking, why do you only need to find one? And they would always answer, oh yeah, because the correlation is so high in you know, between them. And, and I think that unfortunately shows that not many people really understand the nuances um, that we can offer uh, as trend followers. And I think the one you point out there is, is very important because why wouldn't you blend a Chesapeake with someone who's doing things a little bit different, right? Where, you know, essentially uh, you could, by combining the two, probably get even more consistency uh, than just picking one of a group of 10. You know, my nightmare, my nightmare scenario is um, that somehow this is definitely possible that my mentors may not even agree with me anymore. Like, you know, they may say, oh no, I think, you know, maybe some of this uh, volatility management is definitely an improvement. But I think that when I talk to people in the industry, it's almost universal. You, there's some things that you can do differently, Niels, but this is really not one of them. And I'll say to people, hey, look, you know, I don't, I have unconstrained volatility, unconstrained profit potential. Uh, put me in with three other managers or two other managers who fall manage and have a more sophisticated <clears throat> risk management overlay because I'm different. That's just the wrong kind of difference. And so, boy, what a kick in the ass it would be to me if, even some of the turtles or mentors would say, oh, no, we've sort of evolved as well. You're wrong. 
I'm not trying to uh, carry the flag for the old turtle days or for my mentors to prove how right we they were and we are. It's mostly just, I, I think we're honestly, this may be laughable, but we're honestly, Rich and I are definitely honestly trying to just follow the science and the math and be conservative. Uh, and we understand totally, contrary to what Jack said, we understand totally and we're sympathetic because we point out the faults and the problems with this classic approach. It's, it's no fun. It's horrible. If we thought we could get away with a bit of fall management or overlay, risk management overlay, without uh, too many negative consequences, we would do it. It's just honest people making different decisions, having seen the evidence and understanding uh, what the pros and cons are. It's not that we're done or we're dumb or we only use spreadsheets or we refuse to acknowledge. Come on. I acknowledge I'm not an idiot. I see. I sympathize. I know what they're seeing in the data. I don't like this way of trading. It's just that my personality just requires me to be a bit more conservative. And I've admitted many times that I may be proven incorrect. I could have made life easier on myself and not have to always wait and put all this uh, profit at risk for that trailing stop that seems so far, far away. What's interesting to me, not that I disagree with what you say, but what's interesting to me is that when Rich and I put these together, these monthly reports, and we look at sort of the top 10, I think we use minimum 15 years of data. So top 10 uh, managers uh, over the last 15 years. Uh, and if you just look straight at, at KGAR as your determinant, they're, they're definitely a, a, a kind of, um, uh, how should I put it, a variety of trend-following styles in that top 10 right? They're not all non-vol managers, uh, non-vol targeting. They're not all vol targeting. I mean, there is a difference. So sometimes I, it gives me a lot of comfort, meaning if you take a really solid strategy, a really solid approach, like the basic rules of trend following, even if you make a few changes to it, you can't screw it up. I mean, it gives me something, there's, there's something so good about the philosophy or the methodology of trend following, that you're going to do well if you just stick to you know, those core values or core things. And I know we might not agree on every single little nuance as a group of managers, but overall, I think we agree on, on the big important points. And it has allowed people to do well over many, many years, many different market um, scenarios. Uh, I agree. I mean, I really, really do agree with that. I've said it many times because I've been the beneficiary of some dumb ideas <clears throat> and I got bailed out by the big trends. <laughs> so I kind of agree. <laughs> However, let's just leave on a very controversial note here to of pick course. up later. I'll stir the yep. pot. And that is that um, you brought up a very, very good word. I mean, that is a very, very good word. The core the core. And so you're insinuating that as long as we have this core, then we can screw it up or try to improve it on the edges, rightly or wrongly. We got this amazing core. I agree with that wholeheartedly. However, I'm shaking my head. I'm shaking my head. I don't like it. You're at the core. You are hammering. You are hurting the core when you don't let those profits run. Oh, I'm so sorry. The Kager 
you, you posed the question to Rich a few weeks ago. Brilliant interaction between you and Rich. Rich, you're talking about compounding. Doesn't the compounding get hurt by these drawdowns? You're like saying, forget these drawdowns. They don't mean anything. But Rich, doesn't our compounding get impacted negatively if we don't pay attention to these drawdowns? His response was, the outliers overwhelm that negativity. Brilliant. That's right. Everything is overwhelmed. The outliers are overwhelming everything. But when you get too close to that core concept, um, and they are too close to it, they're too close to not letting profits run. And that is, it's not a place I want to be. I want to err on the side of, you know what? I wasn't successful as everyone else. I didn't make as much money. I stayed in business for 40 years because I relied too much on the outliers. Guilty as charged, and I'll be totally fine. But to lose and to not stay around and to really underperform because I, that would be too, because I didn't pay attention to the primacy of these outliers, too much regret for me. I know better, and I, you got to make a choice. And so I do think the core is under attack, and it's very obvious. How could it not be? I mean, what more could you do uh, than? what we've been seeing just this week from prominent CTAs where trend and court letting profits run is really, really just a minor part. Yeah. Uh, I did remember, I do remember that uh, statement from, from Rich and I think um, maybe next time he comes on, which I think might actually be next week, you know, maybe he will evidence that statement somehow because it's easy to say, well, the outliers will overwhelm, but we may have to look at some, some data to see if we can support that. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the difference between, um, I hate to keep picking on poor Jack, but that's the difference between, <laughs> that's the difference between Jack and Rich. Because, you know, Jack had no, zero, didn't even pretend to offer evidence. And as you well know, Rich has, tr number one, tremendous capability to do research and backtesting. And as you well know, number two, he is not going to float uh, ideas that he doesn't have proof for. So we can wait in anticipation for what we know would be coming from Rich, which is here's his proof, his evidence. Not to say that he maybe made a mistake or other people couldn't do it better, but you'll be waiting a long time for evidence from Jack. Well, I don't want to leave it on, on a note where Jack is getting criticized too hard. I know that this is uh, because uh, he did, I think, in fairness, made a good point. It's just that it didn't agree with you, Jerry. But um, let's leave it there. I will always defend any of our listeners writing in with a comment uh, that may not agree with us because that's why we're here and we want actually to hear all sides of the uh, of the story. But uh, I also know that uh, if you are listening, Jack, you, you also know that the fact that that Jerry wants to talk about what you wrote, it means that it, you did hit some nerve in in there. So uh, keep it up. Keep oh, it up. To get another, to I get another question from Jack would be yeah. just a, a dream come true. 
please. Yeah, 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 of absolutely. So we encourage that for sure. Um, and for those of you who have no idea what we talk about, um, it is uh, a few episodes back. Um, so anyways, uh, on a positive note, um, I can certainly say that performance, at least as of Thursday, was still positive um, for the industry. Up 63 basis points for the B top 50, up 15 and a quarter for the year. CT, Shock Gen CTA index up 54 basis points, up 20% for the year. The trend index uh, leading the way, up 76 basis points for May up 20 almost 27% now for the year and the short term traders index up 82 basis points up uh, 9.5% for the year my trend barometer finished at 61 last night Friday night so it's still strong um, MSCI down 5% so far this month down 17.8% so far this year and the world government bond index is pretty flat so far this week now before I uh, wrap up let me just say that we know that your time is a great unrenewable resource and that you lend us an hour or two each week to keep up with the podcast to learn and fail and get up with us and walk together on this journey on figuring out how to best trade and invest in an uncertain and sometimes crazy world and for that we are always incredibly grateful if you want to help the show of course grow further you can always do that by leaving a rating and review on itunes uh, or spotify and uh, i was miss talking before because next week it is alan who joins me and uh, so make sure that you uh, send your questions to info at toptradersonplug.com he's also a wealth of information so um, let's challenge his uh, knowledge a bit uh, next week in the meantime from jerry and me thanks so much for listening And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.